Welcome to another episode of Million Dollar Stories, where we get to interview authors from all over the world. And uh, there are authors we get to interview who are true experts. I mean, this book that we're talking about today is a textbook, and he has put some things in perspective that I, I've never heard said uh, on a podcast or things I've never read in a book. Very simple, direct. And I think if you are out there looking to grow a business, maybe even just start a business, this will be a very valuable podcast for you. The book that we're talking about today is called Managerial Economics. It's for the MindTap course list. And the author is here, Michael Ward. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. Let's start off with the genesis of this. Uh, I'm assuming this was for a course, something that you're teaching in school, but what made you want to write this book and dive into these uh, topics? Pretty much, I think it's in a, at a deep level too. Well, I have to give credit where credit's due. The, the lead author is a friend of mine, Luke Frobe, and he's the one who started this out with uh, his uh, friend um, and colleague, um, uh, Brian Shore. And I was brought in along with Mike Shore um, about a decade or more ago or so. To, to round out the book. And uh, Luke and I met 30 years ago or so when we we're both antitrust economists in, in DC, and we both got back into academia. And one of the things we found out is that um, our students didn't like the way we were teaching things. We taught, we, we economists, we build models, we work with models, and, uh, and some of them get kind of complex. Uh, especially MBA students, they don't they don't care about models. Uh, they want to know what the intuition is, and so the whole point of this is to to boil things down as, as much as possible. And we've had great reception for this. You know, students are not going to remember the model two weeks after the course is over, but they might remember some you know basic concepts. Well, I was reading through the sample that's on Amazon, and you guys, you could take a look at this. Uh, I thought you did it in a very unique way when it comes to some of the questions that you ask people. And one that really stood out to me was how individuals really solve problems. I think that really signifies if you're going to be a great entrepreneur, or a great business leader. It has nothing to do with the plan as much as who is making the, the the plan and being able to make adjustments whenever new variables enter uh, the the problem, I guess. And yeah. one that stands out, and maybe you can kind of tell me what type of person I am, but one question was, all right, let's just say there's you have one shot to take in the basketball game to either put it into overtime or to win the game. You can only take one shot, 70% chance that you're going to make the two-pointer, 40% chance you're going to make the three-pointer. And that one question alone, if you ask that person, uh, will show who that individual is at their core. And me personally, if I'm coming down, my goal is... I'm a patient man now. I, I think back in the day, I wasn't a patient man. So I personally would say, you know what? I don't need to be the hero. Let me just put it in and let's win it in overtime. So I'm a two-pointer guy. Uh, what does that say about me? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, I don't know about the psychology of this. I, again, I'm an economist, but the uh, um, th this is sort of a, a somewhat of a contrived example, but it, it kind of makes you see how numeric you are how how you know we talk about literacy numeracy as well is if you um go for the two-pointer you've got a 70 percent chance of a 50 percent chance of winning okay yeah. <laughs> and so if you do the math on that that's 35 percent if you go for the three-pointer you can win it with probability 40 percent and or not so uh this is just you know thinking through the odds of, of uh what these what these numbers make now 
uh, it's kind of contrived because you never know what the seventy percent is, and if you're really on, if got a hot hand that day or whatever. I don't know, but but yeah, this is so really about the numerics. I guess maybe what I was thinking was, all right, we're a better team. Let me just put it into overtime to win. But let's just say we're getting our asses kicked the entire game, and we're lucky to be hanging in there. Yeah. My mind would shift and say, okay. We got to win it now because if we go into overtime, they're going to catch their second win and beat us. So, yeah, so it kind of is a uh, math game, but I guess, you know, more variables. Right. Uh, this one fan of the field, you probably will play differently. Yeah. If this is the you know, 90s Bulls, Michael Jordan, and they just happen to be tied at the end, they are the better team. And getting into overtime gives, gives them a chance. But if you were the, you know, I don't know, the 90s Clippers and and you're just scraping along and you finally got yourself into a position here, you know that you, this is your only chance. But, mm. you know, those are things that we we're, we're extrapolating away from this on this example. So there are two statements in Chapter two. I'll probably will go back to decision making in a little bit. But uh, Chapter two, you talk about capitalism and wealth. Now I'm a major capitalist, and uh, you do talk like uh, about um, do governments um, play an instrumental role in creating wealth? And at first, I would say, hell no! It's the entrepreneur, it's the business. But when it comes to contracts and uh, certain property rights, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. However, there are two statements that really go against anybody who's a socialist or a communist when it comes to wealth creation. I think you outlined it so perfectly. Wealth is created when assets move from lower to higher valued assets or uses, sorry, uses. Yeah. uses. And then the other statement is voluntary transactions create wealth, right? Voluntary. That is me giving up a resource for something else. And by providing value, I am able to have that gap. And that gap is how I create that wealth. So those two statements go against anybody who's a socialist or communist because voluntary and the fact that you can take nothing, build it into something that's of value to someone else, and then sell it or offer it consistently. That is what's magical about it. And that is how anybody who graduates from school should be focusing on creating more value to the marketplace than anything else. So is there anything that you could say to the audience out there of how important it is to be maybe an entrepreneur or a capitalist if you really want to create wealth? Uh, I, I think that I, when I teach this stuff to my students, I always line out these things and say, okay, here's where there might be a wealth opportunity. And if you're smart enough, you can figure out how to move these assets that are stuck in a low value use into a higher value use. We can talk about uh, things, you know, if you can, you can find a way to market this stuff. Uh, one of the things that I just had a class yesterday uh, is about uh, 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 imperfect information. And one of the things is that if you uh, have a, um, high quality uh, 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 cars being used, cars being sold, low, call, low quality cars you're trying to sell, and, the, and the, the buyer can't tell them apart. Well, then they're going to assume everything's a low quality car. And so, how do you find a way of signaling that you actually have a high quality car? Well, you can get the mechanic to look at these things. Well, if everybody's getting mechanics to look at the cars and get, you know, expert opinion on these things, that's a lot of wasted resources. Well, what if you can share the mechanic's opinion from one time to another? Well, somebody invented something like that called a Carfax. I thought that was brilliant. You know, you can yeah. share this information and you don't have to reinvent the wheel all the time. So, yeah, those are the kinds of examples I love because they're solving a problem of, you know, uh, moving moving assets and higher value uses. Well, Jim Rohn has that famous quote, do not bring the marketplace your need 
bring the marketplace your seed. And it does come from the Bible. But uh, if you lead with how do I help someone else get to where they want to get to, then and only then will I get to where I want to get to. Now, that's very biblical also the way I look at it. But that is entrepreneurship. That's capitalism, right? Find a problem, solve it, and you'll be right. compensated for it. That well, that's the subtitle of the book. Yeah, the, the subtitle of the book is a problem solving approach. Oh, okay. I didn't even catch that because I just saw MindTap course list. So <laughs> significant uh, for anybody to take away from this podcast is that really it's not a matter of resources. It's a matter of resourcefulness. And I think that's a Tony Robbins quote even where you just look around, you could find something that might be broken, but if you could fix it up in a way, you basically can sell that to someone who says, oh, I've been looking for that for a very long time. I mean, if you think about flea markets and antique shops, right? right? Uh, you know, I talk about eBay, you find all those Barbies that are stuck in the attic and you can find a way to sell those things. You can move it from collecting dust in my attic to somebody's you know, playpen or whatever, to, to our uh, uh, play box, toy box. Be anything. And so yeah. now uh, give a quick little background on um, you know what got you into this role and, and basically what you, uh, what, I guess you teach certain ages now. So can you give us a little uh, summary on who you were and who you are now? Um, yeah, I, I, I got my PhD at Chicago and I, my first position after getting my doctorate was at the FTC. And one of the things that being in the government agency does is it opens your eyes to lots of different examples and that the world is not quite as clean as our models look, uh, in when we were studying this stuff. Uh, but there are, um, lots of, you, of examples where your intuition leads you to uh, um, you know looking the right places. So once you have this intuition of what's why this market is working the way it is and what the problems are on this market, you dig a little bit deeper. You can you, then you can might maybe fit it into your models. And so having that FTC experience and then going from that to a business school uh, is really uh, um, helpful for for me to see uh, you know how these things work out in place. In, in practice. And one of the things, it gives me a huge number of examples. I, again, my class last night, I think I had pages and pages of different examples of uh, kids get um, uh, tired of it. <laughs> well, all right. So you are with the students, you see them, you know, I guess go through your, your class. Do they fall in love with business? Do they fall in love with entrepreneurship? Uh, I will tell you that I went to school nobody really shined a light on how sexy entrepreneurship is until I read a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad when I was 22 years old. That's what opened my eyes to this. So do you see people fall in love with it or struggle with it or go against it based off of what the media is saying and what society is saying about anybody who pursues wealth? Well, I, I think that they all are wanting to get ahead. And that one of the things they're realizing is, is the you know sort of demystifying the the sort of business world that I remember going up and and hearing in the eighties and nineties and stuff hearing the stuff about the Wall Street sharks and the green mail and golden parachute and said, what does all this stuff mean and when you try to take away the jargon and just get the concepts down they they appreciate that and then they realize oh I can do that that's that the, the these uh, ideas can you know, apply. And I usually try to um, ask them, you know, what are their interests? Where have they worked? And and what are the problems they see? And if they can apply some of the things in the book uh, about uh, a problem solving approach, just seeing that they go, oh yeah, I could make money 
by solving that problem. Yeah, it might be entrepreneurial coming up their own product, could just be fixing something within their corporation that we're for right now. Yeah. In your book, you do talk about this one lesson of economics, and I want to touch on this because when I first read it, I actually had to read it multiple times to truly understand it. But the one lesson of economics, the art of economics consists in looking not merely at the immediate, but at the longer effects of any act or policy. It consists of tracing the consequences of that policy, not merely for one group, but for all groups. And I think what you're trying to say here when it comes to um, it, how business benefits economics, it really does have to benefit everybody in every class. Now, my personal opinion, the reason why people struggle financially comes down to not just being broke, but it has to do with the broke mindset. And I think the school system plays a major, major role in educating people about money and adding value to the marketplace. So... I've been around multimillionaires and I've been around people who are completely broke. And I come from a place that um, is not really, you know, accustomed to wealth creation. So I've seen both worlds. And I will tell you, the information is given differently to the wealthy and to the people who go to public schools. And so I'm thinking to myself, well, in order for people to escape the cave, they just need to get the right information. Now, with school system, school system's not giving you the rich dad, poor dads, the think and grow riches, right? The Napoleon Hills. And there's a reason for that. I'm assuming that the more you are in the dark about this, the more you can be controlled. So I believe there's a conspiracy. What say you about this? <laughs> I'm I'm not a big conspiracy theorist. This is really outside of my area. I'm talking about this. There's a joke about this is that you don't believe in any conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that joke, by the way. <laughs> you think not, the government's not adding a thousand? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, the, uh, the better answer for me is uh, I, I, that's not something I've investigated. So I really shouldn't opine on that, uh, on conspiracy like that. I, yes. I will say that the um, when I've talked to kids or just finishing high school, going to college, one of the things that um, has come to me is that most of them, their role models are for careers. What do they see interact professionally with all the time? Well, teachers and preachers usually, and they don't know stuff outside of that. And especially teachers are usually uh, it um, could be a union shop, but it's usually a government job. And so there's not a whole lot of entrepreneurial activity within the government. I'm trying not to be too controversial there. <laughs> <laughs> and so they may not uh, be exposed to this. And so, yeah, I'm all for giving some sort of role models uh, um, to, to kids you know, nobody grows up saying, I, I want to be a middle manager when I grow up, you know, this is, uh, but the being exposed to what people do, uh, and how they come to love it. You know, I've got grown kids now, they have their own careers. They've, uh, um, they enjoy what they do. I don't know that was what they expected they would be doing when they're 15, but, um, the, you know, how do you get from here to there? Hmm. Uh, you know, one has his own company. You know, it's pretty cool.
<laughs> what, what have you researched some of the great managers out there, business leaders? And is there any common ingredient that uh, shines through more so than anything else? Do they just understand numbers? Do they understand people? Do they run towards problems rather than away from them? Uh, what have you noticed? Well, the the thing that I, I've seen uh, being researched uh, by others I'll, I'll, is, is a, a tolerance for risk taking, a, a, a tolerance to, to see the big picture, to see the, the opportunities. And you know, the other thing that goes to this, the, your point about the education is, is agency, is that I can do something about this as opposed to being passive in, in, you know, life happens to me or do I go out and get my own life and make things happen and, you know, seizing on these sorts of opportunities. Now, I don't know exactly how to teach that, <laughs> but uh, the uh, um, uh, you know people have to look within themselves and see, you know, how can they encourage that within themselves um or there's a disciplines besides economics that cater that type of uh, learning one thing i've learned from you know managing people is that people become better workers when they become managers it's really weird how your brain operates when you start to see it from both angles and so when i made one of my project ma or an assistant of mine made a, her a project manager I noticed an automatic increase in personal development. She became more fascinated with, uh, you know, what inspires people, what motivates people. And then she started to do more of a self-reflection of what motivates and inspires her. So it's almost like the moment you take on responsibility, I guess self-awareness is a byproduct. And I think maybe whenever I look at this, I used to think, you know, great leaders were born. Nowadays, I think maybe they're made, you know, I think they're made simply by certain experiences and the environment they're put in. So what would you say about that? Have you noticed the same thing? Well, I, I, I think you're right. I, I, I'm going to um, contradict myself here because one, one of the things that we point out in the book is how to overcome you know, what they call shirking on the job and you know, what kinds of monitoring incentives you have to give to people to make sure that. But the other part of this is I think that people are motivated by things other than just money. And one of them is they get intrinsic reward for rising to the occasion. So you give somebody the responsibility to do a project, you have a little bit of um, uh, authority to make some decisions and uh, and you get an attaboy at the end you know, that you did a good job. It, that goes a long way. Now you, you should still pay them, but you uh, you know most people want to succeed and they want to uh, do do right by the people they work with. And um, so if you can encourage that, or if you can encourage that within yourself, I think that that works really well. Yeah, I'm gonna also say this is straying away from what I study. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I I like to hear, see a well-rounded approach because uh, you know just hearing your perspective. Obviously, if you've done this much much research and put your thoughts down on in a book like this, um, you've thought about some things that we haven't. So you know, even if it strays away from your profession, I still like to hear your your opinion. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but what I did find out, and this is mind-boggling too, is that you know you don't even realize it, but um, you know, like you said. Some people are not driven by money. They're driven by this, 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 this purpose that's in their life. And I had a really tough conversation with somebody about a year ago. And she said to me, do you realize how much this job, you know, feeds my soul uh, along those lines, as she said, and gives me purpose in life. And it hit me right then and there, even though she wasn't making hundreds of thousands of dollars, 
it does something for her that keeps her alive. And so I believe, you know, entrepreneurship and business development is, is really about serving others. People get it wrong. People think it's all about making money and generating wealth when it's really about applying your skills, your abilities to helping someone else. And uh, do you think that's what makes the great businesses succeed is that the servant mindset really does shine through and that's what gets them from, you know, out of the grave, basically, to the upper echelon of business uh, industry? Well, you've got to know what motivates yourself. And, and economists get uh, pigeonholed because we talk about dollars and cents all the time. And that's just something we can quantify. But, you know, I know that my career choice is, has cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars because I wanted to be a professor and that I wanted to have the freedom to think about the things I want to think about. Uh, and um, I've made that choice uh, and others can, can as well. Uh, we, it, it, all things equal, I'd rather have more money than less money <laughs> and, and you know be able to spend that. But the, the, it goes to motivating employees. The example I gave in class is something that you know my, my wife was telling me is that uh, um, she uh, worked with some social workers who were um, uh, uh, in the um, adoption agency. And some MBA type came in there and said, I know what we need to do is we got, need to give incentives. So one of the problems problems from his point of view was that some of these unwed mothers, uh, usually uh, unwed, uh, don't they renege on the deal to give up their baby for adoption, and therefore they don't get the fee from placing the child. I know what we need to do is give an incentive for every placement that happens, and that means these social workers are going to work with these young women, are going to uh, convince them to give up uh, their their kids to to the new adoptive family. And that went over like a lead balloon, as you can imagine. Nobody goes into this business to make money. They go into this because they're trying to help families and help babies and you know uh, help the mothers and so forth. I, you know, how dare you think this is about cash? How dare you <laughs> make me twist somebody's arm to give up their child? You know. So anyway, the, the you know, know your crowd. Know what's going to motivate these individuals. Uh, and you know, if it's a salesman on commission, sure. Better commission rates probably going to motivate them to sell the the higher ticket item, mm -hmm. um, and and you know the in the adoption agency they they balk at being called baby sellers because they're not in the, they don't want to be thought of as you know the money being the most important thing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, no, no. Your crowd, I think that's significant because, like you said, if you're hiring a sales rep, they should be comp they should be compensated well and they should be motivated by money. Exactly, um, and. So yeah. But um, we interviewed recently, I think it's about maybe four weeks ago, we interviewed a price specialist and he goes to companies and he helps them put together a price. And he gave me some amazing stats and figures when it comes to like Prada and, and Rolex and why they do certain things. And um, in your section two, I believe of the book, pricing costs and profits, uh, is there anything that you touch on there when it comes to you know, what draws people in? I mean, there's a, there's a psychology that's going on whenever things are priced, whether it's a recurring model or a one-time offer and case in point that, um, just so I can set the stage, he would say that he would go to companies like a Prada. It wasn't Prada, but they would create a, a an item that's so expensive that they know deep down inside, most people, 99.9% .9 of people will never buy. And it'll be a purse or whatever. 
for $25,000 and they'll put it on display for $25,000 knowing that people can't afford it. But right next to it, they'll put a $2,000 purse. <laughs> so the psychology of a person says, man, this thing is 25. I can't afford that, but I can get something pretty close. That looks pretty damn similar for 2000. I can, I can really uh, splurge and, and pay for that. And it's all the game. So anything like that that stands out, that's pretty fascinating for our listeners. Well, the, two stories. Once when, when I was a young man going through college, I put myself through college by selling uh, shoes. And one of the things, tricks I had learned over time was exactly that. You bring out two shoes, one you think they're going to want, one that's a little bit more expensive. And that way you can uh, uh, be the nice guy and try to convince them that they don't really need to spend that much money on the shoe. That you can get them into the, the, the less expensive one. Exactly the same concept. What a game. Yeah. Damn. The other thing about pricing, though, is usually we think of uh, most firms are multi-product firms and so that they have lots of different things and then the, the relationships between these products is um uh oftentimes very complementary and so that you want to get the the products together and that means that you have set different margins in different products so the if you're selling you know baseball gloves and baseballs then you want to sell them uh, uh, the lower the price of the baseball the more you can sell baseball that mitts and gloves well, the extreme of this is free. And for free, you get the peanuts at the bar to sell you more beer. Or the uh, the eyeballs on websites in order to sell you more advertising. And so they're giving thing, content away for free in order to you know get the, the advertising. Uh, and so once you look, think about things this way, you, you think about all types of examples where you've got this these complements, complementary products, and some of them are going free and some of them are actually being subsidized. You know, you, you're going to pay people to take this product. Uh, you know, the um, proverbial um, like a, uh, vacation rental uh, timeshare thing. I'm going to pay I'm going to buy you a dinner so you can see my hear my pitch about this so the, the, it's not even free it's, a, it's they're giving you the negative price on that yeah so that's the part of the pricing that we can talk about in in, in for economics well I, I think there's something happening there inside too that if i receive enough value everybody has this um want to pay people back and maybe it's a karma thing where if i receive so much i'm willing to go and donate or i'm willing to spend more for the for the service it's very much like if i go to a a, a a carnival and i'm enjoying myself to such a high degree i'm willing to maybe give more money back to the games to play because i'm like i got my money's worth i'm gonna yeah. i'm gonna do a little bit more now so uh it's almost like you, you gotta give and then you have to receive but you have to give 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 and then ask for a sale and that's what's happening and i guess maybe it's the reciprocal approach deep down inside humans are um, very reciprocal and they usually want to pay back whatever they owe internally it's great yeah you know i've this is not in the book but i've thought about this kind of deeply about this is that we are social animals and that we much more would rather interact with each other than be hermits and so you can, and part of interacting with each other is being reciprocal and it'd be, uh, it, it sharing things. It could be sharing a story, could be sharing a meal. It's just uh, uh, time with each other, it's sharing, holding hands with my grandson, you know, that, things like that. Uh, both of us get something out of that. 
And so uh, a lot of this economic activity is just to make those those um, moments more poignant, I think. Uh, yeah. I think it's Brian Tracy that does talk about the law of reciprocity. So guys, look that up. It's significant because uh, you can apply that, but also you are applying to it whether you realize it or not. Um, well, section four, you talk about strategic decision-making. So strategic game stands out. I have not read this part of the book. So can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah. So, uh, let me catch up with you here. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> I saw, I just love the act of everything is a game. In my opinion, if you can gamify your life, if I can run 25 miles this week, that's my, that's the game I need to, to win. Right. Oh, you know what? Business is a game. So, uh, ads, I'm going to do this so I can accomplish this so I can actually get here and then I can do this. So I look at it as a game. And I think if you gamify your life, you can have fun with it. And, and, and the more you're like a child in life, the more curious you are, the more people see your enthusiasm, the more you draw on the right energy. So, uh, I love the chapter here titled the the strategic game. So please fill us in on this. Well, this is uh, gets into a little bit of that, but it's really about how we can apply game theory to uh, some strategic decision making and and also bargaining. And one of the differences between the setup and you know usually supply and demand, we usually think there's lots of buyers, lots of sellers, and you get where the lines cross is where the equilibrium is. But oftentimes you don't have lots of buyers and sellers. It's just you and the other guy across the table. You're negotiating. And so that means that all kinds of things are possible now. You don't have the uh, um, as much of a worry that if I if I ask for too high of a price, well, he'll just go someplace else. That's possible. But if you're dealing with a supplier, you're going to try to come to terms uh, on on the deal. And so there's a lot of um, insight that game theory has told us about this. One of the I think the keen the coolest ideas about this is. Uh, what, what comes out of repeated games is that what, what comes out of repeated games is um, when do relationships form? When does trust form? Mm-hmm. Is that when uh, I, I can try to take advantage of you in this transaction, but if we're going to be dealing with each other in the future for a long time, well, then I know that you're going to take it out of my hide later. And so uh, I, if I tra- if I can treat you uh, decently now and develop this relationship then we can both make it back later on if we can develop this level of trust, which is kind of cool that in a chapter in a very thin book, we can develop a theory of trust when people trust each other. It's, uh, well, there is stats that show you need to hear a brand seven times before you, I guess, consider buying it. So is there a date or a time frame that you calculated that trust is built within X amount of hours or months well we don't put times on this it's usually uh how how much is at stake um if if you're um if you're repeating this transaction enough times this the more uh, um more periods more opportunities for transacting in the future um uh makes it more likely you can trust each other um so the uh, it's not a certain number of of a specific number, and it it matters in how much value is being created by the transaction. If there's a, not very much, then it takes a lot longer. And if there's a lot of value being created by the transaction, you can um, you, you want to trust the other guy a lot, and you can share that trust. Wow, uh, share, share 
So um, what you're saying is that it does, there's a few variables that are very significant. And uh, number one, it's how much is given up, but number two, what's the value that's going to be given back to them, right? What are they going to um, obtain? And then how often are you going to have to give up a resource to acquire it? So monthly recurring systems or a software, for example, right? Uh, I'm willing to give it a shot for $97 a month, thinking that well, maybe it provides $500 a month to me. So I have to have that clarity and very much uh, that plays a factor. How much clarity is associated with this will turn into that. Is that right? Yeah. One of my favorite in industries that I study a lot is video games in the video game industry. And one of the things that's cool about this is they went from pricing each game to some sort of subscriptions to this. What's nice about that is you can see when people join the subscription and, and cancel the subscription. Well, now you've changed the incentives for the supplier that I want to keep you coming back. I want you to keep on subscribing to this so that I uh, and the, the customer initially, the gamer has to think, well, um, I'm going to take a chance on this game now because I think that it's going to improve over time and that there's going to be a lot more players to play with, a lot more um, downloadable content or whatever it is. And so the, the going from a price model to a subscription model, which we call a bundling model, uh, it changes the, the incentives of, of both parties. And usually for the better, they try to find ways to, to create more value uh, through this relationship. Hmm. And well, you're talking about computer games there. Uh, it, it, I mean, I just automatically think of what John Carmack and John Romero did with Doom and 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 certain. If you're familiar with that, right? Do you know that yeah. game? It's, <laughs> okay, so obviously you have to know that game. But when it comes to the shareware, right? Giving a sample, giving a taste, but also not giving them everything and not making it so it's 100 perfect. It's getting them to like it to a degree that says, you know what, I'm willing to look into it a little bit more, and then over delivering and blowing them out of the water. Right. You create a raving fan and then you start to have a tribe which shares the name out and then they become your sales force. Right. So especially in, in digital markets now, word of mouth is, is key. Uh, you want things to go viral as much as possible. But what Doom is really known for among economists is that they, they created the game engine model. They created such a great game with Doom. They realized, oh, we know what we don't have to rewrite all this code over again for the next game. And we can use a lot of this code over again. Well, you know, it's not just us using this code over again. We can let other developers use the same code as well. And so you get this, uh, what we call vertical disintegration uh, uh, between the game engines and the game developers. And so the, the game developers just license these game engines now, which is, I think is really cool. The, the, the efficient scale for a game engine is, you know, thousands of games. The efficient scale for a game developer, maybe dozens of games. And so, uh, uh those sorts of examples, I think, kind of highlight what we get into in section six in organizational design. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. So they did make their game and it was fascinating. I, I don't get to talk about Doom a lot on these podcasts, but oh, they made it open source, right? So they were able to give the code to individuals in 1993, I think. And therefore, individuals are still able to play with the code and make it better and better and more refined and more specific. And that's why it's still around today and mm -hmm. has this following, right? I think that they have the, one of the things about that specific game is that it's so um, easy to work with the code is that it's been ported to all kinds of different devices. Somebody ported it to an, uh, a 30-year-old Nokia phone. I've seen somebody that, Somebody yeah. put it onto a, um, 
uh, a pregnancy test. You know, this is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay, you've seen anyway. the same things that I have. Okay, I like your style, man. Love it. Yeah. So Carmack and uh, Romero, geniuses. Um, yes. And Carmack, I believe, is still involved with AI and Meta and all that. So yeah. fascinating. Anyways, um, to get back into, I guess it's section five, really, is really what okay. I want to touch on. Uh, it's uncertainty, making decisions with uncertainty. I will tell you that most people will not, most people will not make a decision until they have all the facts in front of them. But the great entrepreneurs that I follow can make a decision with a lot of uncertainty on the table, trusting in their gut instincts more than anything else. So what can you say about section five that's important for us? So one of the things uh, along those lines is you can uh, gather more information, more information, get reduce the uncertainty and the opportunity is passed. And so the, you've got to weigh the costs of reducing this uncertainty with the cost of missing the opportunity. Most, you think about a product launch, products have got a finite life cycle. And so if you wait too long, it's going to be um, obsolete by the time you, you launch it. And so you have to do things under uncertainty. That also gets down to the incentives of the, the person you want to launch the product. Is it, um, if I launch a product and it fails, my boss is going to know that. If I launch a product that, if I fail to launch a product that would have succeeded wildly, no one's ever going to see that. My boss is going to yell at me for losing money on the launch that failed, but they won't know that I lost money on the missed opportunity. So that means you have to have some tolerance for uncertainty. You have to have some tolerance for mistakes. Did they make the right decision based on the information they had at hand versus, you know, it's always easy to be the, the money morning quarterback and say what they should have done, it, you know, um, but you you want to encourage people to uh, to make mistakes, you know, to uh, make decisions quickly and, and efficiently. I, I go through some, some examples of really bad uh, delays that have cost us considerably. But the, the um, but it, the, the the really what it comes down to is that the the compensation scheme for the person who was making that decision was out of whack. Mm. The compensation punished them for product failures, but not for um, missed opportunities. There's a there's a law that's out there called Parkinson's law, right? Whatever the amount of time you give yourself is, uh, that's how long it'll take you to do it. Right. <laughs> there's, it's, it's a pretty cool law, but also it says that the longer you give yourself to do it, there's actually a less likelihood of you getting it done, which is all, another fascinating law. And I don't know if that's tied to Parkinson's law or not, but um, having these shorter windows and, and deadlines, even right. if you miss it by a little bit, you need it for a reason. So having certainty of when you need something done by will cause you to become like a... Uh, a cat in a corner, your, your back is up against the wall and you're going to fight harder and more efficient to make sure you hit that deadline. So um, I don't know if there's anything that you that can say about can, that. This, the parallel is, is, you know, what we call linearizing versus lump sum stuff is that if you have a deadline, you almost always get everything done right before the deadline. And I, I, we have a blog that goes with our book. And one of my most recent ones is that they, the, the patent examiners, uh, um, uh, research on patent examiners, they had been fit, uh, an assignment deadline. They used to finish everything up in the last week or so. They changed the incentives so that they linearized, linearized the um, uh, compensation so that they got compensation if they cleared their desk regularly. And lo and behold, they the... Uh, decisions were made much more evenly over time. 
And so, again, it comes down to what the incentives are for the person. The way we talk about it in the book is you, you can think about this in terms of time, but it's also the budget you have. If you're in a budgeting in an organization, well, yes, uh, if I have this amount of budget, I'm going to spend it all. Or if I have a goal that I have to achieve in terms of revenue, once I've reached that, well, what's the value of making another sale? Well, you know, the, the, I'm only compensated for achieving this goal. So if you can change the incentive so that I keep on getting compensated for every additional sale, then uh, and you don't necessarily want to punish somebody equally for getting 99% of the goal versus 80% of the goal. You want to make the um, the, the compensation tied to uh, not to a budget, but to um, how well you have actually performed. You know? Well, what you're talking about, it made me think of, I, it, it seems like PlayStation back in the day, 96, 90, 95, 96, read your book because what <laughs> they did was pretty much the exact approach that you should take when you want to destroy your competition. I think, and maybe you know this more than I do, PlayStation figured out, okay, we need to be a little bit different than Sega and Nintendo. Let's create the CD, all right? And they tried to sell it to both of them, which turned them down. And they said, okay, we'll go out and do it on our own. And then they had the right pricing strategy. I think it was $200, might be wrong mm -hmm. on that, but they just destroyed their competition. So the pricing was on point, they were different. And they offered something that uh, included what was it? Um, they, they had licenses for music. And okay. so kids just fell in love with it. Uh, anything that you could say that maybe you learned from how uh, effective PlayStation was and uh, yeah, what I, we can take away from it? I don't know that ex specific example. But one of the things I do know that is in the 90s of the consoles, they came up with what they we call the, the razors and blades strategy. Is that if you give away the razors, you can sell people blades that are going to fit on you. And the same thing's happening with, with happened with consoles. Is if I give away the console, then I can sell them games, and get and they'll buy games for my console and, and instead of the other guy's console. Now they don't give away the consoles, but the the margins on the consoles are much thinner than they are on the games. And the the console makers get a license fee for every one of the games that were done. It's a little bit different now with digital distribution, but uh, but back in the heyday of all this, it was uh, these complementary products, this the console and the games, and it it even went further than the um, the low margin, high margin. It was also a way to uh, um, uh, not extract as much money from people who could not buy as many uh, games, but extract more of the surplus from people who bought lots of games. So you can kind of meter how much uh, people enjoy the games and the, how much wealth is being or value is being created. You can extract more of it with this type of a uh, pricing strategy. And it's and just fascinating. I, Sega long glommed onto that. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating that you can learn so much. No matter what industry you're in, you can learn from these video game companies. Like you said, give you, you give away the razor, you could sell them the blades later, right? And so. Right. If you're saying that the low, there was a low margin on maybe whether it was Sony or maybe, I don't know, Xbox 360, I got out of games right around 2000, <laughs> somewhere in there. So I don't know what all the cool stuff now, but uh, um, I still see a few great computer games out there like DayZ and all that because it's amazing. Some games now are, you know, 15 years, 12 years old, even I think. DayZ, there's a game out there that is constantly being refined. And because it's digital based and it's on a computer, 
it's I think it's a subscription or maybe there are certain things that you can buy within the game. Right. So what you realize is that it's just a great model that you can take when you're looking at video games and apply to your business and, at some capacity. I love it. Well, I I can talk about video games all day too. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I, yeah. <laughs> seems like you know your stuff. I could I could do I could do a little bit, not as much well, as you can. But well, the the you download games onto your smartphone. They're almost all free. And they're giving away the game in order to sell the advertising or sell the downloadable content. And that uh, there's a game out there that the the tweens have loved called Fortnite. Of course, that's completely free, but they've got a billion dollars worth of sale of downloadable content of you know, sort of cosmetic uh, things that their your characters can have. So it's again, hey, they read the chapter. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's happening there is that the kids are enjoying themselves so much. They said, "Hey, this is for free." My pa the parents are like, well, it's a free game. Okay, you could buy the outfit for the game, right? Yeah. So it is a wild way of looking at it. And I guarantee the first person that came up with it was laughed out of the room. What do you mean give away the, the game for free? It doesn't make any sense. But well, man, it's the longer approach. And maybe that's what makes the great companies great is they have a much longer vision. Well, the other is, you know, this is what Mattel did with Barbie. Is that you know, Barbies are very popular dolls, but uh, where the real money is is on the on the accessories. And so, if I give away the Barbie, they don't give it away; they just sell it a, at a very small margin. And then uh, the usually the little girls want to buy all the accessories that go with the Barbie, different outfits and different uh, you know dollhouse. The this is the same sort of thing of giving something away and having the complimentary product that you can price uh, and get your value out of. Very much like what we do with webinars. I want to give away my webinar, right? Because I want to give you enough value that you're going to say, wow, he taught me something. Let me try something out for a very right. small price and then over deliver again. And then you continue that relationship up and up and up. So therefore you could serve people at a very high level with, you know, an incredible team behind them. So yeah. very smart what they uh, have done. And I guess, I mean, I'm mimicking it whether I realize it or not. So it's awesome. You know how meta this is that we do the same thing with our blog. We have a blog that supports the textbook where students and usually faculty can uh, look at the latest examples of the things we'll talk about in the book. We give it away for free and that helps sell the book. So we make the money off the book. <laughs> yeah, well, right now we're running ads for people's books for free download, right? They're, they're in a pipeline and then say, hey, do you want to join a webinar, which is another little investment of time. And then, hey, do you want to buy this product at the end of that webinar? So, right. Yeah. Give, 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 and then ask, and it makes so much sense. Video game companies mastered it. Um, so last question I have for you is outside of your own book, um, is there one that you recommend to our audience? We just love, uh, um, you know, entrepreneur based books. So is there anything that maybe you read when you were younger that put you on this path to, uh, wanting to understand how, um, business really works? Well, uh, I can give you two suggestions. They're both uh, economics related stuff. Is that the uh, one of that got me thinking more about the intuition behind a lot of economics is this guy named Stephen Landsberg. And he wrote a book called Armchair Economist, came out about 15 years ago. He's still writing books like this uh, as well. And it's very provocative uh, uh, subject matter and goes through, you know, use the economics as, as where it will logically take you. Um, but if you want something a little bit more up to date, um, uh, some friends of mine uh, I know are working on the economics of what how AI is going to uh, matter, and especially how it's going to be incorporated into 
the world. And um, this is uh, Avi Goldfarb's a guy I know, but he has got um, uh, co-author Joshua Gans, and I forget there's a third author. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I forgot you. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> so uh, what was that book called? Um, Prediction Machines. Got it. Yeah. And so... Um, that got you to fall in love with this pathway that you saw? Well, it, the armchair economists got me fall, thinking about how to uh, teach better and to the, how we were going to structure our textbook. Uh, and that was, I read that 15, 20 years ago. I forget how old it is. The AI book has made me think, you know, there's yet another huge shock coming to the computer industry. And the, the, the latest one was smartphones. You know, it really changed how we live our lives. We think the AI is going to change how we live our lives, and uh, and so it's important to know uh, what the economics behind it is. Not uh, the technical part of it is important to know as well. I'm not that technical guy, but knowing you know, how it's going to be deployed by firms and by you know, consumers. I now have ChatGPT on my phone, and so when I'm out and about and I want to ask a question, I can uh, you know get it get this stuff done, especially when I'm traveling. So. Yeah. So you uh, you obviously are in the the school system. You uh, you you see how students behave. Uh, you know when it comes to technology. Um, I I think when it comes to AI, mediocrity will not be tolerated in the future, right? And I think that individuals who possess this entrepreneur mentality will always do well no matter what. Do you think that the students you're um, you're you're educating are they? Do you, are they embracing all of it? Are some people scared about by the time they get out of school that their degree is going to be meaningless? What have you sensed more than anything else amongst the students? Well, it's varied. You know, you were talking about numeracy. I, I tell my students, if you're comfortable with numbers, you can make money with this. Well, if you're comfortable with the AI, you're going to, it's going to make you more productive. Uh, not everybody's going to be as, as productive or comfortable working with this stuff. And quite honestly, it's not going to have applications in every industry and every sort of decision that you want to make. So for some people, it might just be fun. For some people, it's going to make them much more productive. So there is self-sorting to the type of people who are you know, innovative and curious and uh, want to do the next best thing are, are going to go into those uh, endeavors where this is used more fully. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think that's really cool. I, I don't want to diss people who are not going to use it. I, um, I, I used to be on the cutting edge and now I'm old. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, it's, it, some of my colleagues wonder about me studying video games and so, you know, the, uh, <laughs> well, you can learn a lot from video age. games as you, as we talked about for sure. <laughs> But you just saw you said the phrase self-sorting. That's exactly what's happening. And I think the hierarchies are changing faster than ever because of this technology. So um, that could be scary for some, but very exciting for others. And it really comes down to the perspective. However you look at it, that's um, that's the biggest, uh, uh, I guess, um, that's the biggest clue to where you're going to go in life, your perspective on things. Change how you look at things and what you change or what you look at will change. Pretty fascinating quote there. So um, I think it, it comes from, uh, it might be a, I don't know if that's a Napoleon Hill or a Jim Rohn or a Jordan Peterson, one of those guys. <laughs> Anyways, uh, the book, guys, is called Managerial Economics, Mind Tap Course List, A Problem-Solving Approach. Uh, 
Is there a way for people to get in touch with you, maybe a website or a social media channel that uh, you recommend? Sure. What I would suggest is go to managerialecon.com, and that's uh, our blog. And from there, you can reach any of the authors if you want to or comment on any of the uh, uh, entries. You say, you know, you're full of it here. You don't have ivory tower wannabes. <laughs> uh, or yeah, I've got a better idea. Here's a, here's another example of this idea. Yeah. Got it. Okay, so check them out. Uh, get the book. Very, very smart stuff. Smart stuff that I read right in the very beginning of the book, guys. And there's a few ways of looking at things that I've never even uh, looked at before. So uh, I love it. And uh, thank you so much for being here, Michael Ward. Really appreciate your time and talking video games with me. <laughs> All right. Take care. Remember, guys, a million dollar book will lead to a million dollar life. Right on.